Section thirty of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Vizitelli. Second part of Chapter Seven. Thinking of the faces they would make gave them pleasure ahead of time. However, they couldn't remain standing there admiring the table. The Coupeaus had lunched very late on just a bite or two, because the stoves were already in use, and because they did not want to dirty any dishes needed for the evening. By four o'clock the two women were working very hard. The huge goose was being cooked on a spit. Squint-eyed Augustine was sitting on a low bench, solemnly basting the goose with a long-handled spoon. Gervaise was busy with the peas with bacon. Mother Coupeau kept spinning around, a bit confused, waiting for the right time to begin reheating the pork and the veal. Towards five o'clock the guests began to arrive. First of all came the two workwomen, Clemence and Madame Poutois, both in their Sunday best, the former in blue, the latter in black. Clemence carried a geranium, Madame Poutois a heliotrope, and Gervaise, whose hands were just then smothered with flour, had to kiss each of them on both cheeks with her arms behind her back. Then, following close upon their heels, entered Virginie, dressed like a lady in a printed Muslim costume with a sash and a bonnet, though she only had a few steps to come. She brought a pot of red carnations. She took the laundress in her big arms and squeezed her tight. At length Bosch appeared with a pot of pansies, and Madame Bosch with a pot of mignonette. Then came Madame Lerat, with a balm mint, the pot of which had dirtied her violet merino dress. All these people kissed each other and gathered together in the back room, in the midst of the three stoves and the roasting apparatus, which gave out a stifling heat. The noise from the saucepans drowned the voices. A dress catching in the Dutch oven caused quite an emotion. The smell of roast goose was so strong that it made their mouths water, and Gervaise was very pleasant, thanking everyone for their flowers, without, however, letting that interfere with her preparing the thickening for the stewed veal at the bottom of a soup plate. She had placed the pots in the shop at one end of the table, without removing the white paper that was round them. A sweet scent of flowers mingled with the odour of cooking. "'Do you want any assistance?' asked Virginie. Just fancy you've been three days preparing all this feast, and it will be gobbled up in no time. Well, you know, replied Gervaise, it wouldn't prepare itself. No, don't dirty your hands. You see everything's ready. There's only the soup to warm. Then they all made themselves comfortable. The ladies laid their shawls and their caps on the bed and pinned up their skirts so as not to soil them. Bosch sent his wife back to the concierge's lodge until time to eat, and had cornered Clemence in a corner, trying to find out if she was ticklish. She was gasping for breath, as the mere thought of being tickled sent shivers through her. So as not to bother the cooks, the other ladies had gone into the shop and were standing against the wall facing the table. They were talking through the door, though, and as they could not hear very well, they were continually invading the back room and crowding around Gervaise, who would forget what she was doing to answer them. There were a few stories which brought sly laughter, when Virginie mentioned that she hadn't eaten for two days in order to have more room for today's feast. Tall Clemence said that she had cleaned herself out that morning with an enema like the English do. 
Then Bosch suggested a way of digesting the food quickly by squeezing oneself after each course, another English custom. After all, when you were invited to dinner, wasn't it polite to eat as much as you could? Veal and pork and goose are placed out for the cats to eat. The hostess didn't need to worry a bit. They were going to clean their plates so thoroughly that she wouldn't have to wash them. All of them kept coming to smell the air above the saucepans and the roaster. The ladies began to act like young girls, scurrying from room to room and pushing each other. Just as they were all jumping about and shouting by way of amusement, Gouget appeared. He was so timid he scarcely dared enter, but stood still holding a tall white rose-tree in his arms, a magnificent plant with a stem that reached to his face and entangled the flowers in his beard. Gervaise ran to him, her cheeks burning from the heat of the stoves, but he did not know how to get rid of his pot, and when she had taken it from his hands he stammered, not daring to kiss her. It was she who was obliged to stand on tiptoe and place her cheek against his lips. He was so agitated that even then he kissed her roughly on the eye, almost blinding her. They both stood trembling. "'Oh, Monsieur Gouget, it's too lovely,' said she, placing the rose-tree beside the other flowers, which it overtopped with the whole of its tufts of foliage. "'Not at all, not at all,' repeated he, unable to say anything else. Then, after sighing deeply, he slightly recovered himself and stated that she was not to expect his mother. She was suffering from an attack of sciatica. Gervaise was greatly grieved. She talked of putting a piece of the goose on one side as she particularly wished Madame Gouget to have a taste of the bird. No one else was expected. Coupeau was no doubt strolling about in the neighborhood with Poisson, whom he had called for directly after his lunch. They would be home directly. They had promised to be back punctually at six. Then, as the soup was almost ready, Gervaise called to Madame Larat, saying that she thought it was time to go and fetch the Loreleur. Madame Larat became at once very grave. It was she who had conducted all the negotiations, and who had settled how everything should pass between the two families. She put her cap and shawl on again, and went upstairs very stiffly in her skirts, looking very stately. Down below the laundress continued to stir her vermicelli soup without saying a word. The guests suddenly became serious and solemnly waited. It was Madame Lerat who appeared first. She had gone round by the street so as to give more pomp to the reconciliation. She held the shop door wide open whilst Madame Lorilleur, wearing a silk dress, stopped at the threshold. All the guests had risen from their seats. Gervaise went forward, and, kissing her sister-in-law, as had been agreed, said, "'Come in. It's all over, isn't it? We'll both be nice to each other.' And Madame Lorilleur replied, "'I shall be only too happy if we're so always.' When she had entered, Lorilleur also stopped at the threshold, and he likewise waited to be embraced before penetrating into the shop. Neither the one nor the other had brought a bouquet. They had decided not to do so, as they thought it would look too much like giving way to Clump Clump if they carried flowers with them the first time they set foot in her home. Gervaise called to Augustine to bring two bottles of wine. Then, filling some glasses on a corner of the table, she called everyone to her, and each took a glass and drank to the good friendship of the family. There was a pause whilst the guests were drinking— the ladies raising their elbows and emptying their glasses to the last drop. "'Nothing is better before soup,' declared Bosch, smacking his lips. Mother Coupeau had placed herself opposite the door to see the faces the Lorilleur would make. 
She pulled Gervaise by the skirt and dragged her into the back room, and as they both leant over the soup, they conversed rapidly in a low voice. Oh, what a sight, said the old woman. You couldn't see them, but I was watching. When she caught sight of the table, her face twisted around like that. The corners of her mouth almost touched her eyes. And as for him, it nearly choked him. He coughed and coughed. Now, just look at them over there. There's no saliva left in their mouths. They're chewing their lips. It's quite painful to see people as jealous as that, murmured Gervaise. Really, the Lorelor had a funny look about them. No one, of course, liked to be crushed. In families, especially when the one succeeds, the others do not like it. That is only natural. Only one keeps it in. One does not make an exhibition of oneself. Well, the Lorelor could not keep it in. It was more than a match for them. They squinted, their mouths were all on one side. In short, it was so apparent that the other guests looked at them and asked them if they were unwell. Never would they be able to stomach this table with its fourteen-place settings, its white linen tablecloth, its slices of bread cut in advance, all in the style of a first-class restaurant. Madame Lorelot went around the table, surreptitiously fingering the tablecloth, tortured by the thought that it was a new one. "'Everything's ready,' cried Gervaise as she reappeared with a smile, her arms bare and her little fair curls blowing over her temples. "'If the boss would only come,' resumed the laundress, "'we might begin.' "'Ah, oh, well,' said Madame Lorelot, "'the soup will be cold by then. Coupeau always forgets. You shouldn't have let him go off.' It was already half-past six. Everything was burning now. The goose would be overdone. Then Gervaise, feeling quite dejected, talked of sending someone to all the wine-shops in the neighbourhood to find Coupeau. And as Gouget offered to go, she decided to accompany him. Virginie, anxious about her husband, went also. The three of them, bareheaded, quite blocked up the pavement. The blacksmith, who wore his frock-coat, had Gervaise on his left arm, and Virginie on his right. He was doing the two-handled basket, as he said, and it seemed to them such a funny thing to say that they stopped unable to move their legs for laughing. They looked at themselves in the pork butcher's glass and laughed more than ever. Beside Gouget, all in black, the two women looked like speckled hens, the dressmaker in her muslin costume sprinkled with pink flowers, the laundress in her white cambric dress with blue spots, her wrists bare and wearing round her neck a little grey silk scarf tied in a bow. People turned round to see them pass, looking so fresh and lively, dressed in their Sunday best on a weekday, and jostling the crowd which hung about the Rue de Poissonnier on that warm June evening. But it was not a question of amusing themselves. They went straight to the door of each wine-shop, looked in, and sought amongst the people standing before the counter. Had that animal Coupeau gone to the Arc de Triomphe to get his dram? They had already done the upper part of the street, looking in all the likely places, at the little civette, renowned for its preserved plums, at old Mother Baquette's, who sold Orleans wine at eight sous, and at the butterfly, the coachman's house of call, gentlemen who were not easy to please, but no coupeau. Then, as they were going down towards the boulevard, Gervaise uttered a faint cry on passing the eating-house at the corner kept by Francois. "'What's the matter?' asked Gouget. The laundress no longer laughed. She was very pale, and labouring under so great an emotion that she had almost fallen. Virginie understood it all as she caught a sight of Lantier seated at one of Francois's tables, quietly dining. The two women dragged the blacksmith along. "'My ankle twisted,' said Gervaise, as soon as she was able to speak. 
At length they discovered Coupeau and Poisson at the bottom of the street, inside Père Colombe's L'Assommoir. They were standing up in the midst of a number of men. Coupeau, in a grey blouse, was shouting with furious gestures and banging his fists down on the counter. Poisson, not on duty that day, and buttoned up in an old brown coat, was listening to him in a dull sort of way, and without uttering a word, bristling his carroty moustache and beard the while. Couget left the women on the edge of the pavement, and went and laid his hand on the zinc worker's shoulder. But when the latter caught sight of Gervaise and Virginie outside, he grew angry. Why was he badgered with such females as those? Petticoats had taken to tracking him about now. Well, he declined to stir. They could go and eat their beastly dinner all by themselves. To quiet him, Gouget was obliged to accept a drop of something, and even then Coupeau took a fiendish delight in dawdling a good five minutes at the counter. When he at length came out, he said to his wife, "'I don't like this. It's my business where I go. Do you understand?' She did not answer. She was all in a tremble. She must have said something about Lantier to Virginie, for the latter pushed her husband and Gouget ahead, telling them to walk in front. The two women got on each side of Coupeau to keep him occupied and prevent him seeing Lantier. He wasn't really drunk, being more intoxicated from shouting than drinking. Since they seemed to want to stay on the left side to tease them, he crossed over to the other side of the street. Worried, they ran after him and tried to block his view of the door of Francoise, but Coupeau must have known that Lantier was there. Gervaise almost went out of her senses on hearing him grunt. "'Yes, my duck, there's a fellow of our acquaintance inside there. You mustn't take me for a ninny. Don't let me catch you gallivanting about again with your side glances.' And he made use of some very coarse expressions. It was not him that she had come to look for with her bare elbows and her mealy mouth. It was her old beau. Then he was suddenly seized with a mad rage against Lantier. "'Ah, the brigand! Ah, the filthy hound!' One or the other of them would have to be left on the pavement, empty of its guts like a rabbit. Lantier, however, did not appear to notice what was going on, and continued slowly eating some veal and sorrel. A crowd began to form. Virginie led Coupeau away, and he calmed down at once as soon as he had turned the corner of the street. All the same, they returned to the shop far less lively than when they left it. The guests were standing around the table with very long faces— the zinc workers shook hands with him, showing himself off before the ladies. Gervaise, feeling rather depressed, spoke in a low voice as she directed them to their places. But she suddenly noticed that as Madame Gouget had not come, a seat would remain empty, the one next to Madame Lorilleur. "'We are thirteen, said she, deeply affected, seeing in that a fresh omen of the misfortune with which she had felt herself threatened for some time past.' The ladies, already seated, rose up, looking anxious and annoyed. Madame Potois offered to retire, because, according to her, it was not a matter to laugh about. Besides, she would not touch a thing. The food would do her no good. As to Bosch, he chuckled. He would sooner be thirteen than fourteen. The portions would be larger, that was all. Wait, resumed Gervaise, I can manage it. And, going out onto the pavement, she called Père Bru, who was just then crossing the roadway. The old workman entered, stooping and stiff, and his face without expression. "'Seat yourself there, my good fellow,' said the laundress. "'You won't mind eating with us, will you?' He simply nodded his head. He was willing he did not mind. 
"'As well him as another,' continued she, lowering her voice. "'He doesn't often eat his fill. He will at least enjoy himself once more. We shall feel no remorse in stuffing ourselves now.' This touched Gouget so deeply that his eyes filled with tears. The others were also moved by compassion, and said that it would bring them all good luck. However, Madame Lorilleur seemed unhappy at having the old man next to her. She cast glances of disgust at his work-roughened hands and his faded patched smock, and drew away from him. End of second part of chapter 7 Recording by David Lazarus